The time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, January the 3rd, 2024. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, yesterday, a Dane County judge ruled that election clerks can cure absentee ballots. The city of Monona has yet to decide the fate of a historic house on publicly owned property. Many Wisconsin workers are still stuck at the federal minimum wage. And in the second half, an exploration of fine arts and fundraising. All the news from 60 years ago from Madison. And we may have a snowstorm on the way. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Multiple state houses were targeted with bomb threats this morning, including the Wisconsin State Capitol in what appears to be a hoax. According to the Associated Press, the state capitals of Maine, Mississippi, Hawaii, Kentucky, and Georgia evacuated the buildings. The Wisconsin state capital did not evacuate or go into lockdown. The bomb threats come the week of the three-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection in the nation's capital three years ago. It's the new year, of course, and local elections, along with a presidential primary, are on the horizon for April. Last week, the Wisconsin Elections Commission quickly dismissed a complaint against the body by a Democratic activist who sought to remove Donald Trump from Wisconsin's primary ballot. Monaco Brewing Company owner Kirk Bangstad filed the complaint. It was rebuffed by lawyers at the Elections Commission who said that a complaint naming the commission warranted an ethical recusal by its members from any decision. The complaint comes amidst an effort in several states to exclude Trump from the ballot under a clause of the 14th Amendment which bans former office holders who engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding future office. Meanwhile, the former president announced today he's appealing a decision by the Colorado Supreme Court to remove him from the primary ballot in that state. Yesterday, he appealed a similar decision issued by Maine's Secretary of State. Meanwhile, here's what's on the spring ballot in local elections following yesterday's deadline for candidates to file their paperwork. Ten of the 37 supervisor seats on the Dane County Board will be competitive, reports the Capital Times. Two of those races have more than two candidates, which means they're headed to a February primary first. Looking to schools, two members of the Madison School Board up for election this spring will be running unopposed. Here's what won't be on your ballot this spring. The Dane County Executive won't be on your ballot in April. That'll come later in November during the presidential election. So far, two candidates have declared their candidacy. And members of the Madison Common Council won't be on your ballot in April. After this year, though, we'll see elections for local alder each spring. That's due to a referendum passed last spring to stagger alder elections across years. The Urban League of Greater Madison is once again offering an expungement clinic later this month. The clinic helps local residents who have criminal records request pardons and clear older arrests from records when those arrests didn't result in a conviction. The Urban League has been running these expungement clinics for a number of years. 
Though expungement is attainable, the process can be tricky. The crime in question must be nonviolent, not listed as a felony, and not committed past the age of 25. Then a judge must make the final call as well. The other option to clear one's record, a pardon, can be difficult also. The applicant must justify their reason for receiving a pardon and then wait for the case to be reviewed by the governor and the pardon board. The next clinic meeting is set to be held on January 25th from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Urban League Center for Workforce and Development. More details are on the Urban League's website. Ice cover on the Great Lakes is at the lowest recorded level, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. No lake has more than half of 1% coverage as measured on Monday. Ice cover of the lakes last year was the fourth lowest in the last 50 years. In addition to the lack of safe ice fishing, the lack of ice cover impacts the ecosystem in other, more complicated ways. Warmer water means a faster evaporation in warmer months, which spells the conditions for better growth of toxic blue-green algae. It can also impact fish in the Great Lakes. Fish that spawn in the fall use ice to protect their eggs incubating over the winter. Without that ice, the eggs are less likely to hatch. And those were the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. More than 1.8 million Wisconsinites voted in last spring's election. High turnout in a high-profile race for state Supreme Court, among other local races. Then, as usual, most voters headed to the polls on Election Day to cast their ballot. But roughly 15% of voters chose to send their ballots through the mail ahead of time using an absentee ballot. And those voters had an extra step, finding a witness, having them sign a ballot envelope, and writing the witness's address. How election clerks should handle absentee ballots with missing witness signatures or addresses has been a recent political football. But yesterday's ruling from a Dane County judge could help make a more uniform standard for the process, which is known as ballot curing. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the details. Wisconsin election clerks are getting a tweak to help them count absentee ballots following a Dane County judge's ruling yesterday. That ruling, in a case that's been brewing for a year and a half, allows election clerks to return to a previous standard of curing some absentee ballots. At issue is the witness's address information, a requirement for all absentee ballots. Yesterday's ruling allows election clerks to use common sense to fill in parts of a witness's address if a portion of the address, like a zip code, is missing or incomplete. Scott McDonnell is the Dane County clerk, helping run elections in all of the county's cities, towns, and villages. He says that clerks have been limited from fixing basic mistakes on an absentee ballot with real consequences for voters. If there was a zip code or a date or things missing, that would knock your ballot out from being counted. Recently, clerks have been blocked from correcting minor mistakes to addresses. Sometimes, a witness to an absentee ballot might write same, if it's the same as the voter's address, or they might use ditto marks. Having seen hundreds of these examples, it's very, very often extremely obvious where the person lives. You should be able to count that ballot. Under yesterday's ruling, clerks have more of that flexibility to address basic mistakes. If a clerk can determine where the witness lives,
based on what they have written, and they add the missing information while processing the ballot, that vote will be counted. That process is called ballot curing, which a Waukesha judge said was a violation of state law in a 2022 ruling. But Dane County Judge Neil Sestoon disagrees. In yesterday's ruling, he points to a protection under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that says it's illegal to reject a vote when a ballot lacks information not needed to determine whether a voter is qualified to cast a ballot. He writes that, by rejecting otherwise valid absentee ballots due to missing address information from the witness, some Wisconsin clerks are violating federal law. Neil Sassoon goes on to reference a number of examples in Appleton, Green Bay, and Racine, where absentee ballots were not counted because the witness did not write their full address. And in Oshkosh, clerks rejected a ballot where the witness explicitly wrote, same as the voter's address. Neil Sassoon also writes that the issue could be clarified in the state legislature, but it hasn't. The Republican-led legislature has pushed for the case to be dismissed. Meanwhile, the ruling could still be appealed to the liberal-leaning state Supreme Court. The case is the latest in the war over election administration in Wisconsin in the fallout of the chaotic 2020 elections, which saw flip-flopping election administration rules up to election day in the spring and conspiracy theories and a partial recount in the fall. McDonald says it boils down to what election clerks are there to do. Are you coming from a point of view of trying to make sure the ballot is counted and that you have a legitimate way of, say, referring a case of potential voter fraud to the law enforcement and then you can say, here's the person you need to talk to, here's their address, right? Versus, I want to knock this ballot off because I think it's most likely for my opponent. Yesterday's ruling is narrowly focused to the address of the witness of an absentee ballot. It doesn't address other errors on absentee ballots. The number one thing that's not even tied to this ruling is people don't sign it. you got to sign. I can't really do anything about that. That's the one I see a lot that is a problem. If you are planning to vote absentee in the near future, you can request your absentee ballot for this year's elections. Just head to myvote.wi.gov. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Many states are ringing in the new year with increases to their minimum wage. Wisconsin is not among them, with the Badger State staying with the federal wage of $7.25, which it has done for years. A policy expert notes that employers are enticing workers with higher pay these days, but some workers are still trapped at the baseline wage. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. There are bills in Congress to boost the federal minimum wage, which remains at $7.25 an hour. Separately, many states increased their wage levels January 1st, but not Wisconsin, and a regional expert says that leaves some workers behind. Like the federal government, Wisconsin has kept its minimum wage at $7.25 for more than a decade. Labor economist Laura Dresser has studied the issue for the Center on Wisconsin Strategy. It says even though employers are increasingly offering higher wages in a tight labor market, competitive pay isn't reaching everyone. So the 725 really matters, but it's less binding today than it was in the past. But for the workers who really have those constraints on opportunity because of their concerns about immigration status, concerns about physical mobility, employers can really take advantage of that. She says that makes it especially hard when there's more pressure from inflation. Her findings show that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2028 would boost pay for nearly 15% of Wisconsin workers. Skeptics of such moves argue about hurting businesses, 
But Dresser says research on California's higher level found no measurable impact on jobs. Dresser notes that supporting a higher minimum wage is not necessarily a political issue with increases seen in both conservative and left-leaning states. She points out that in those states, it's not just the workers who are benefiting. You can also see that in state economies where they've raised the minimum wage, that there's actually a payoff that employers are receiving because while they've raised the wage, they're also reducing costs associated with turnover and open positions that they can't fill. She says the higher wage helps the employee with things like transportation and child care, making it easier for them to stay in their job. Dresser's research also notes that black and brown workers and women stand the most to gain when there's a minimum wage boost. As for the congressional plans, there are competing proposals from Democrats and Republicans with different scales for raising the wage. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.18 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Late last month, the city of Monona released their master plan for the San Damiano Friary, one of the few publicly owned areas along Monona's shoreline. But they have not determined what to do with the property's 1890s era Frank Alice House. In addition to his position on the city's common council, Monona Alder Richard Bernstein is also the executive director of the Dane County Historical Society. He shared his perspective on the matter with our producer, Faye Parks, earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you. So to start, can you give us the rundown on the San Damiano project? When did the city of Monona purchase the land and for what reason? Well, the property was previously owned by a religious group and they wanted to sell it and they were making plans to demolish the property. And when they didn't get permission from the Landmarks Commission, the city, I believe, made an offer to buy it. I think it was like 2021, 22. So it hasn't been that long. And so they bought the property, I think, for $10 million. And so just to clarify, part of the appeal of this property was that it's waterfront, something that the city of Monona has very little of. Could you explain that? Well, most of the lakefront property on Lake Monona, not just in Monona, but Madison Monona has been very strongly developed or very densely developed with houses and private property. So this is one of the few uninterrupted shorelines, I think 1,500 feet of shoreline that has not been closed off, you know, and so now that it's in public ownership, it's available for people to use as an open space. So it is a rarity. It was the first house, I think, on Lake Monona, at least in Monona, but now it's one of the last undeveloped shorelines on Lake Monona. Just to clarify, this would be sort of like a a city park that they're designating it as this property? Yeah, I don't think anything's official. I don't think it's been declared officially as a city park, but it is open to the public. And I think people have started to use it for quiet contemplation. I think that was one of the values people really spoke up, that it's a quiet place, contemplative place. My understanding is that the San Damiano project ultimately motivated you to get into local politics. Is that accurate? You know, I don't know if that's entirely true but uh, I, you know one did follow the other so there there might have been a natural progression there but yeah i did get more and more involved and made the leap from one to the other but 
I don't know if they were directly connected, but one definitely led into the other. Late last month, the city released its master plan for the site. What details do they have ironed out right now? I think the plan basically outlines existing conditions. They did a wind and water analysis. They did a tree inventory. They sketched out in very broad terms, you know, what the Frank Alice House could be used for. So it's a very summary approach. It's a very high-level approach, and it doesn't really make any strong recommendations that I can see either way. It leaves kind of an open question as to what to do at the Frank Alice House and, in general, how to develop or not develop the property. It leaves more up for further analysis than anything else. And so you pointed out that the Frank Alice House is perhaps one of the oldest houses on the shoreline, making it a historic site. Can you tell us more about its history and then its placement within the natural area of the property? Well, it's a 10-acre site, and the house is kind of in the southwest corner of the property, fairly close to the shoreline. It's a large house. It's several thousand square feet, three stories. The third story was a ballroom. It was built by Frank Alice, who was the son of the original Alice of Alice Chalmers. This was his kind of gentleman farmer home. It wasn't his main home. He lived in Milwaukee. Had he lived longer, I think he might have been a real stalwart of the progressive farmer, quote unquote. But that was cut short. Then it was sold to various individuals that lived there for a while. And then I think um, a pair of sisters owned it who eventually gave it to a religious order who then lived and used the property up until the point it became owned by the city of Monona. Has it been officially designated as a historic site? It is a city of Monona landmark. So it is covered by the city's historic preservation ordinance. So the Landmarks Commission will have some authority over any exterior changes or if the property is to be demolished. But it has not yet been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And I think that's something that is possible. It would take a certain amount of effort to make a few key changes in the exterior of the property. There's some artificial siding on the exterior of the property that would need to be removed. That and a couple other things might be done before applying for the National Register status. If it does become listed on the National Register, it would then be eligible for some historic preservation tax credits. And if those could be applied to any project there that could make a very big difference in the financial feasibility of rehabilitating the property. You touched on this earlier, but as of right now, the master plan does not determine whether or not the Frank Alice House would be preserved or leveled for a new property to be built. Can you sort of explain the difference between the two in terms of the expenses? You mentioned there might be some federal funding if it's officially recognized as a historical site. But right now, what is the price difference between the two approaches to the project? I don't know if that's been fully analyzed. I think some level of pro forma analysis has to be made, and you have to look at what the cost would be for one versus the other. 
that I think probably should be the next best step is to do a financial feasibility study for preserving it or not. Until we really get a look at the economics of preservation versus demolition, uh, I don't know if we'll really be able to make an informed decision on what to do with the house. You mentioned the siding, that kind of thing. What are some other rehab projects that would have to be done to preserve the house? Well, I think it's mostly these cosmetic issues. I think there's like an asbestos siding that's on the house, but luckily all the clabbered, the original wooden clabbered is all in place. So if we took off that siding, which I don't think has to cost a lot of money, we could see what kind of shape the clabbered siding is underneath. And at that point, we could kind of take a snapshot and talk to the State Historical Society and says, is this now eligible for the National Register? If not, then you might want to take the next step, which would be to restore the front entry. I think it was in the 1940s or so that the religious order that lived there extended the front entry and added an addition right in the center of the house. And if that could be reversed and we could restore the entry, we could then ask the State Historical Society, is it now eligible? And I think after those two major rehab projects, you would have, I think, a very good shot at listing the property on the National Register. You mentioned earlier before we started recording that you noticed some errors in the master plan that was released. Can you share a couple of examples? Well, they talk at one point where if the house was to be listed on the National Register, they'd have to establish or be clear that the period of significance coincides with the lifetime of Frank Alice. And I think basically the house would not be eligible for being associated with Frank Alice. It would be eligible because it's a good representative example of a type of architecture. And so this is a Georgian revival styled house. And if some of those changes were made that I was outlining before, then the period of significance would be the date of construction. It wouldn't be the lifetime of Frank Alice. So I think that was a bit of an error. Also, it said if the house was listed on the National Register, if there were any federal monies, it would need to be reviewed by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. I think I would have worded that a little differently. I would have said it needs to be undergo a, a Section 106 review, which may or may not involve the Advisory Council. Generally, it just involves the State Historical Society. There again, it's just a bit of a miswording of what the review process would be if there was any federal money involved. So those were some of the things I noticed. So you've sort of walked us through your perspective on why the Frank Alice House should be preserved, but some have said it's better to replace the house entirely. Have they provided any explanation as to why that would be better from their perspective? Well, I think that goes back to the cost analysis. I mean, replaced in what sense? I mean, I don't think you could build a house like that with those materials today. If you ever went in the basement, there are these huge timbers, you know, like 80-inch square, and uh, they're in as good condition now as they were in 1896. That house is overbuilt, and structurally, it's in wonderful condition. So the bones of the house are excellent. Some of the primary spaces on the first floor 
are high style and beautiful and could function wonderfully for all kinds of small events. If you would try to recreate in size and scale and detail what there's now, it would cost you five times the amount it would cost to rehab. I'm fairly certain. If you compare apples with apples, you know, this is a bargain. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Richard. Yeah, you're welcome. That was City of Monona Alder Richard Bernstein sharing his perspective on the San Damiano Project. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. On this week's edition of Framing Culture, we'll revisit feature contributor Jose uh, sorry, Texiera's interview with Trent, Mil- Trent Miller, a local fine artist. Let me say that again. Uh, oh, Texiera Carlos, interview with Trent Miller, a local fine artist. They discuss Miller's personal work, his curatorial endeavors, and the fundraising events that he's organized in the past. Framing Culture I am at the Madison Public Library, and today I have a special guest. Hello, my name is Trent Miller. I wear many hats. One of them is the head of the Bubbler program at Madison Public Library. Hello, Trent. The reason I decided to approach you is precisely because of those many hats you wear. For those in the Madison area that don't know Trent, he's an artist, a culture organizer, producer, mediator, facilitator. So I would like to know more about it. Yeah, so my background is in fine art. I have a master's degree from Boston University. When I was younger, I was always making things. I was painting, drawing, doing events. In undergrad, I did a lot of events. I organized, I was always doing shows and getting people together to do interesting things. And after grad school in Boston, I ended up in Madison. And in Madison is where things really started to go in an interesting direction, both with my own art, then with my role of actually connecting people in the community. So that's what I find very interesting about what you do and sort of your social practice, so to speak, because you have to constantly navigate in between your more personal art practice and then your sort of community work, right? So how those two connect or don't connect? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I have tried to figure that out for many years. And at times I've really tried to separate the two of more what is my personal work and what is my paid job at the library and just my interest in connecting people and doing interesting and sometimes strange things. I think I've come to at this point in my life of really kind of tying a lot of these things together. I do have an exhibition coming up in the spring here in Madison at Garver. And in that exhibition, one of the things I am thinking about is my different roles, right? I've always drawn, I've painted and done a lot of drawing, but it all goes back to drawing. And so, you know, in that exhibition and just in what I'm thinking about right now as an artist, 
when I want to draw, I want everyone out of my way. I don't want anyone around. I can't have my family around. I need my own space to make these little, you know, these little or big drawings that I'm working on or paintings. But then I just, I'm a person that likes so many different things. I get kind of bored just doing that, right? And so that's why I start to think of ways to kind of expand and to include other people into what I'm doing and what I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm just recalling now a big, big event happened exactly here where we are at the Madison Public Library. MPL went through a huge renovation years back. And so Trent was in charge, responsible for organizing a big cultural event, performances, exhibitions in the space. And so now when people visit Madison Public Library, of course, you have a beautiful design building. But this was the site that sort of skeleton site for that big event and then the new library open, right? So the event was called Bookless. And what happened at that point, I was teaching part-time at the university and I was working part-time here. And I somehow convinced the administration at the time at the library to let me do an art event. You know, it started small. I put out a call for some different artists and we were just going to do an art show. Well, it soon spiraled as many things do when I start to get going on something, a big project. You know, how big can we do this? What could this be? And so we ended up having over 100 artists as part of this event. It was a one day event. We had rock bands, we had DJs, we had drinks and food here. We had a lot of interactive projects and we ended up raising around $30,000 for the library out of, we had no budget to do this event. It was very DIY. It was very, let's just, you know, figure this out as a bunch of artists. And we basically took over the empty library between when it closed and before it was renovated. 5,000 people showed up in one day with lines around the building to get in. Oh, wow. That is quite, quite impressive. And I know that years later, you did maybe a little bit more organized, formal in terms of structure event at the municipal building. When we reopened the central library, we did an event called Stacked. And at each of these, we had, you know, over 100 artists involved. And so we built this real network of artists, you know, to, to do these big pop-up events, which I love to do. About six years ago at this point, when we did the municipal event, the municipal building was closing down and renovating, similar to the central library. And so I got an email or a phone call from someone in the city that said, hey, uh, remember that big event? It was great. We'd love to do something here at the municipal building. Again, using the materials in the space, working with a bunch of artists. And so we had a huge event that came out of that. And I think one of the biggest things that has happened because of these are one, we have this huge network now of artists with the bubbler program that I help oversee. But then I've also seen all these little trickles and ripples of other artists who've met each other through these events who now are doing other projects in the community. Should you say that the one of the most rewarding, let's say, outcomes in these experiences for you, it's, it's to build that network? Or is there any other aspect that you want to highlight when you organize these big, big events? Yeah, I just love ideas and I love seeing all these, you know, trying to coordinate 100 artists is wildly fun for me, especially in like a, a limited time. Just seeing the connections that are made between different artists, seeing the community come into a space and think and see that space in a different way. I think when there's still lots of people that come to Madison Public Library, the Central Library or to the municipal building, having people have that good experience in that space, I think can do something to the space and can make people feel and think about what's possible in different ways. 
And I remember hearing people uh, praising so much both the bookless event and now more recently the municipal as something that, you know, in the city, oh my God, we never experienced this. This is so new, so fresh. Your energy as an artist and cultural producer is quite, I wouldn't say unique, nobody's irreplaceable, but you have quite a charismatic presence in bringing these things together. Were you always like that or something that you discovered later in your life as a human being? I mean, it's interesting. I am, I have always been like that. My mom laughs about it, that I was always, you know, growing up, even in like as a teenager, I was the organizer, the coordinator, the person getting the people together. It brings me, it really does bring me great joy. It's probably the thing that makes me the happiest in the world is being able to pull these things together, being able to see other people enjoy them. And for those who are listening to us who follow WORT, they probably have heard also some stories around the bubbler art residencies. But right now I would like to shift with you and, um, you know, from the more public social sort of phenomenon into your own inner workings as an artist. I remember very well, right before the pandemic was a very cold winter. You invited me to go underneath your house somehow uh, to see an interesting gallery space that you had there with some interesting work. And I remember we connected so much on Tarkovsky and cinema. Anyways, just talk to us a little bit about that facet of yours as an artist and as a, a thinker. The Bubbler program has grown so much at the library and we've done so many other things, but it's been harder to do these kind of pop-up events or to have curatorial control over things, right? Like my job at the library is more to look at other people's ideas, help support them. And so I needed some other outlet outside of making my own art. And that became this gallery in my house. The gallery is called One Plus One Equals One, which is from one of my favorite Tarkovsky movies called Nostalgia. In the movie, there is this person that everyone kind of sees like, oh, he's really off. Like we don't, no one gets this guy. And he has one plus one equals one written on the wall. And at one point in the bill, in, in the movie, he says one drop plus one drop makes a bigger drop, not two. He's just seeing things differently. It's not that, you know, one plus one equals one is incorrect. He's just looking at the world in a different way. And that has always attracted me. And I've always thought about that, how to see and think about things differently. And I think that's what art does at its best. And so thinking about that, I wanted to set up this gallery space in my basement, which happens to look like an old, there's stone, there's these big wood beams, and it, it feels like a Tarkovsky movie. So I set up this space and invited people that I knew. It is underground. It's also just kind of word of mouth. You know, anyone who can interact with me, I can, you know, I, I let them know about the space. A couple interesting things about the gallery. One is that you're not allowed to bring cell phones and there's no photos of the space. So I have a locker where you lock the phone. I just wanted a different experience that you could only have while not having this digital device with you to take photos, right? If you see the show, you see the show, you smell the space, you feel what it feels like to be in that space, but there's not a digital record online anywhere. One of the aspects that fascinated me the most was that bringing back or rescuing us from this oversaturated media life uh, into less connected and yet more experiential, more lived experience with you underground in that space. So we are definitely going through interesting and troubled times for all of us as adults, for sure. But our kids and teenagers are going through a lot of challenges. And I, I think that experience made me think also about this, too. And this is it for today. 
Thank you so much, Trent, for sharing your thoughts and feelings on your social and also personal role in the arts and in cultural in general. And thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on, and I'm excited to hear this new adventure with this uh, on WRT. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, if the short days and almost endless overcast these past few weeks have got you down, you'll be happy to know that this morning was the latest sunrise of the year at uh, 727 and 32 seconds this morning. So uh, although there's not much we can do about the uh, overcast above us, thankfully, both the morning and the afternoon are now lengthening again. So our uh, light starvation won't last forever. December did end up closing uh, just one with one below normal temperature day. And that was the 19th, if you're keeping track. So uh, it ended up being close to what we were expecting almost from the start of the month, given the way the long range forecasts had been looking back at that time. And with the uh, exceptional warmth that we experienced over the Christmas holiday in particular, the month as a whole turned up nine and a half degrees warmer than normal. That's actually the warmest monthly anomaly since uh, actually another very warm December back in 2015. That one was the second warmest on record and December 23 will go into the books as the fourth warmest. Uh, incidentally, the 23rd, 24th, and 25th of this past month all tied or exceeded their previous high minimum temperature records, and the 26th set a new daily high temperature record. So uh, quite a string of days there. Uh, we've returned to something slightly closer to normal since then, uh, by which I mean only four or five degrees above normal. And we don't look to be going too deep into the Arctic air anytime soon, the way it's looking, although uh, the anomalous warmth anyway looks to be uh, behind us. Temperatures over the coming week or so look on average to be uh, around normal or perhaps slightly above, so that at least means uh, regular forays below freezing, although I don't foresee the lakes or indeed even the skating rinks, I don't think, glazing over anytime soon. Uh, in addition to being warm, we've also been hard-pressed for any kind of sensible weather to speak of, with a mere five inches of snow having fallen during December and that having come in just in dribs and drabs. So we're still looking for a good snowstorm, uh, which would, uh, I will observe, also have the side benefit of insulating the warmth in the ground and provi providing a reflective surface, which might help to cool us also. And lo and behold, despite the fact that the coming five days are still going to continue dreary and uneventful, a fairly good prospect for a snowstorm does look to be on the cards for this coming Tuesday-Wednesday period. That's a long way out, of course, and we saw a similar, very promising-looking system you might remember completely evaporate, essentially, back in it was early December or late November, as I recall. So uh, that the prospect for this coming one does need to be caveated. But that said, the three major long-range forecast models have been surprisingly aligned over a good eight or ten runs now and bringing a major upper wave across the country in the early days of next week and then deepening a surface low in the uh, typical snowstorm panhandle region down in the southern plains and sending that circulation on a fairly promising path 
Somewhere to our southeast, the latest runs have been taking it uh, just to, from about St. Louis Tuesday morning to around Gary or Southern Lake Michigan uh, Tuesday night and on towards about Detroit Wednesday morning. The Canadian model is about 50 or 80 miles further south and a bit slower, but otherwise fairly well aligned. All the iterations have a solid moisture connection to the Gulf of Mexico and a fairly decent reservoir of cold air up to the north and west of the storm. The lack of cold air may turn out to be something of a concern. The primary worry, uh, as always this far in advance, is the storm track. Uh, this one has been airing, if anything, perhaps a bit far south and east on the modeling for an ideal snowstorm anyway here. But so far the track has stayed surprisingly stable through about central or northeastern Illinois, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. This uh, system is currently, or the upper portion of this system that will develop the surface system is way out in the Pacific Ocean near the International Dateline, so it'll be well into the weekend before any additional confidence can be had from updated modeling. But you might keep your eye on this coming Tuesday to see how things are shaping up. Between now and then, though, uh, not a lot going on. We've currently got a weak cold front pressing south across the area, which may squeeze a few more snow grains or some light freezing drizzle out of the cloud deck. The saturation above us, though, is fairly shallow, so I would not expect much to come down. A drier air will be pushing south over us tomorrow, but I'm skeptical that we'll see uh, terribly much cloud breaking, maybe some. Um, backing southwesterly winds should take us back above freezing on Friday with an increase in cloud cover again at that time. And we may deepen column moisture enough for uh, a flurry or a snow shower to Saturday as a weak system passes by to our south. Weak surface high pressure will then push southeastward over us for Sunday and Monday, hopefully at that time with some better clearing again. Temperatures will be coolest over just the coming 24 hours or so with lows tonight in the low to mid 20s and highs tomorrow around 30. Then we'll generally be seeing lows in the low to mid 20s, uh, probably the coming three or four overnights out through the weekend with daytime highs generally back in the low 30s. And winds will generally remain uh, fairly light as well with only weak systems passing by us. Uh, backing, uh, our winds backing subtly and southeasterly on Saturday. Uh, then veering uh, lightly west again uh, Sunday into Monday. The winds should be backing east and northeast after that, though, as the next week's storm, whatever form it may take, approaches. More on that on the Monday morning forecast at 10 a.m. Anyway, at the station down here on Bedford Street, at the moment, the temperature is 35 degrees. The dew point temperature is 26. Winds are out of the northwest at 5 miles per hour. Uh, overcast above the station at about 4,500 feet, though with uh, plenty of lower cloud beneath. And the barometer is at 30.08 inches of uh, mercury and uh, starting to rise now over the past hour or two. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to 1964 for news from the University of Wisconsin 60 years ago. Stu Levitan has the flashbacks on this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, the University of Wisconsin, 1964. Performances and Presentations. 
In February, the 1964 Student Symposium on Dissent features Senator Gaylord Nelson, Alabama Governor George Wallace, John Bircher, Representative John Russelo, Communist historian Herbert Apthecker, and critic Dwight MacDonald, who dissents from the event. I'm in favor of free speech, but that does not mean anyone has a right to speak anywhere, he says in a speech supporting the cultural elite. Mixed musical messages on April 17th, as the legendary Bo Diddley rocks the military ball in Great Hall, with Ken Adamani's band The Night Trains on the bill, Guy Carawan, the folk singer who first popularized We Shall Overcome, is singing for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the University YMCA. The next night, it's a Bo Diddley album and nickel bags of popcorn for the thousand who pack Great Hall for the Student Peace Center's 8th Annual Anti-Military Ball. Great live music, too, for the largest turnout yet. Tracy Nelson sitting in with the Johnny Cal Blues Band. At the back, SPC literature and buttons. Comedian and activist Dick Gregory and the Freedom Singers come to campus in May on a national 30-day tour raising money for Freedom Summer and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The show sells poorly and has moved from the Stock Pavilion to Music Hall. In late October, Harry Belafonte electrifies a Fieldhouse homecoming crowd of 9,000 with a three-hour concert that also features blues legends Sonny Terry and Brian McGee and Greek songstress Nana Muscuri. Throughout October and November, excellence for every musical taste. Violinist Isaac Stern, jazz pianist Oscar Peterson, and bluegrass pickers Flat and Scruggs delight diverse Union Theater audiences. Sitar master Rabbi Shankar graces Great Hall, two years before Beatle George Harrison first hears him play. And Mayor of McDougal Street, Dave Van Ronk, beats back a bout of bronchitis for a program of folk blues. Deputy Peace Corps Director Bill Moyers extols the virtues of public service. Cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer explains the need for satire. And Saul Bellow gives a capacity Great Hall audience a 45-minute reading from his next novel, Herzog, to be published this fall. In July, Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique, tells a predominantly female audience packing Great Hall that educators must, quote, take the responsibility for affirming the image of women as a person. There are more fundamental things to discuss about women on campus than problems of sex. In September, Invisible Man author Ralph Ellison reads from his novel in progress, which he says is, quote, all autobiographical, but not an account of my own life. The section he reads, about an old black man who loses his religious faith when he finds worms have been eating his coffin, is among the 300 pages destroyed by a fire in 1967. And campus dateline, January 6th. Faculty unanimously approve allowing all seniors, regardless of age, to live in off-campus apartments effective this September. There are now about 6,000 students who live in apartments and about 750 seniors under the current minimum age of 21 who cannot. The self-described left liberal Students for a Democratic Society formally registers with the UW as a student organization on March 2nd. We have people here who think they are socialists and people who think they are liberals, says mathematics grad student and founding chairman C. Clark Kissinger, adding, quote, there is left, and there is left. Economics professor Jack Barbash is the group's faculty advisor. 
It's a protest doubleheader on March 6th, thanks to Alabama Governor George Wallace and Secretary of State Dean Rusk. A group from the Congress of Racial Equality pickets Wallace as he returns to Madison for an afternoon press conference at the Edgewater Hotel to mark his entry into the state's spring presidential primary. That evening, about 30 students from various socialist and peace groups picket Rusk's talk before an overflow crowd at the First Congregational Church, part of the centennial celebration of the university YMCA. On May 15th, Governor John Reynolds names Catherine F. Clarenbach, Director of University Education for Women, the founding chair of the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women. Clarenbach, who holds a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in political science from the UW, also chaired the first state conference on the status of women in January. She and husband Henry, a realtor, have three children, Sarah, David, and Janet, and are co-presidents of the West High PTA. On June 24th, slugging outfielder Rick Reichardt, a 21-year-old two-sport star junior from Stevens Point, who won back-to-back Big Ten batting championships and led the conference in stolen bases, ends a bidding war by several major league teams and signs with the Los Angeles Angels for an astronomical $205,000. The sum, which wasn't even his top offer, so stuns Major League Baseball, it was twice what Hall of Famer Willie Mays made that year, that the league starts an amateur draft, making Reichardt the last of the baseball bonus babies. Son of a Green Bay Packers team physician, Reichardt came to Wisconsin on a football scholarship and was the starting fullback on the 62-63 Rose Bowl team and leading receiver in the conference last fall before choosing the diamond over the gridiron. On November 5th, Assistant Professor Howard Temin announces breakthrough discoveries into the relationship between tumor viruses and cancer, the revolutionary reverse transcriptase analysis that would lead to his Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1975. On December 14th, Assistant Sociology Professor Maurice Zeitlin and others draft an open letter to President Johnson, signed by 94 faculty members, calling for the phased withdrawal of American troops from South Vietnam. And on March 9th, the riot of the year. Nine inches of heavy snow and a couple hundred young men from the Ag Campus dorms make for a spectacular frozen melee on the night of March 9th as students roll a huge snowball eight feet around onto Elm Drive, blocking it just east of the new natatorium and snarling traffic for a four-block area. As their number grows to about 500, the students drive police back with a barrage of snowballs for about 90 minutes, tip over two large flatbeds around the massive mound to protect it, even block westbound University Avenue with trailers from the stock barn. Campus police finally start pulling random students into squad cars for questioning, and the crowd fades to study for six weeks' exams. There are no arrests. <laughs> and that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, snow-awaiting WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live, lo- live local news at 6 our headline writer this evening were our headline writers this evening were David Aarons and Gigi Royko Maurer. Special thanks to our feature contributors Jose Carlos Texiera, Stu Levitan, and Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. 
Katie DeGiorgella was our engineer this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>